I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Coming up in the next hour, it's a man who directed a boy with 8,800 faces, a band that toured the entire perimeter of the U.S. in 80 days, and a woman who describes her favorite music genre as... If Ghetto and Hot Mess had a baby, and that baby became a stripper who made a sex tape with an athlete and became a reality star, that's Ratchet. <laughs> it's... It's... Adventures of Awkward Black Girls, Issa Rae, Paranorman writer-director Chris Butler, and music from Finn Riggins. That's tonight on LiveWire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Halmeister. You also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. And Poet Scott Poole is away tonight, but we are grateful that a very funny stand-up comic, a man who's played Carrie Brownstein's boyfriend on Portlandia, but is surprisingly not Fred Armisen. Ian Carmel will be joining us. Ian will be sitting in uh, our audience tonight. He'll be paying close attention so he can let us know any life lessons he may have gleaned from the show at the end of the night. And of course, we've got music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Thank you, Ralph and the boys. So we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, Before we get started, we actually wanted to welcome another new station. We've recently picked up WFYI 90.1 FM, Indianapolis, Indiana. This is, this is a very cool station. They're so cool. They dress up a life-size cutout of Marketplace's Kai Rizdal for every holiday. And they also actually convinced the city to rename the alley behind their building Sesame Street. So these people work on Sesame Street. <laughs> WFYI, you're our kind of people. That is to say, total public radio nerds. Welcome, Indianapolis. We love you already. to get to, uh, but before we, we get to it, there's some pretty big news in the world recently, and I feel like that it's important enough for the future of our nation that we should really talk about it. Of course, it's about Lady Gaga. Um, last week, she responded to media discussion of the increasing size of her thighs and belly by posting pictures of herself in her underwear and without makeup to the internet, uh, with a caption that said, bulimia and anorexia since I was 15. May we make our flaws famous and thus redefine the heinous. And by doing that, she actually prompted thousands of her fans to do the exact same thing. And it's it's really a lovely thought, and it's an important message right now since uh, the rise of social media has provided girls with just millions more opportunities to find flaws in their bodies, which they totally needed. Um, And as much as I support the concept, my immediate response was, you know, good luck with that, Gaga. Um, which made me think of my grandma who I call Gaga and that I really need to actually write her and maybe stop calling her Gaga since I've been able to pronounce grandma since like 1971. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is 
that it appears that women, in one form or another, have felt their bodies were imperfect for millennia. And while I admire what my Gaga, what Lady Gaga is doing, I'm not sure that what she's doing is going to have much of an impact in the long run. And it just made me think about the impetus for all of this body dissatisfaction. When did all of this start? And I thought, well, maybe the first corset would be a clue. According to Elizabeth Ewing, the author of Dress and Undress, A History of Women's Underwear, the first image of a woman in a corset was a snake goddess in Crete in 2000 BC. And this was exactly at the beginning of the 300-year proto-palatial period, as we all know, so it makes sense (laughs) that women would want something new, right? They wouldn't want to wear something pre-palatial. That would have been soups embarrassing. (laughs) But... But these women had the right idea, right, if they're trying to attract a man, because studies have shown that one of the physical attributes that men find most attractive is a really high hip-to-waist ratio. You know, it's a woman who goes clonk, clonk. And this is exactly what corsets increase, right? And this harkens back to the Stone Age when selecting mates came down to who had a higher potential to reproduce. So back then, a man telling a woman she had childbearing hips was a compliment and not a reason to throw a prehistoric appletini in his face. <laughs> and this made me think of these Stone Age women. Now, these women, they, they couldn't possibly have had body issues. In the Paleolithic era, you're not going to come back to the cave after a day of gathering berries and trying not to get eaten and say, ugh, I just, ugh, I feel like this pelt makes me look dumpy, you know? <laughs> I was running away from this woolly mammoth, and I was all... Oh my God, are my thighs touching right now? (laughs) Next week, I am totally going paleo, which is, you know, now, so that's totally convenient. (laughs) It, It seems like when we got into trouble as humans was when we started having time to think, right? Or more accurately, to overthink. Maybe the only thing that will finally get rid of these body issues for both men and women will be some global disaster like an asteroid hitting Earth or a worldwide cable outage that just sends us into a post-apocalyptic age of scavenging for food and walking for hundreds of miles to get to a survivor's encampment for refills of our supplies. Side note, by the way, is The Walking Dead's Andrew Lincoln bringing you canned foods and dressing your wounds in your vision of the apocalypse? Anybody? He's super hot. And there's also heavy petting in my post-apocalyptic world, (laughs) which is inappropriate, I think. In any case, if that goes down, none of us will have the time or the energy to contemplate our navels or the size of the bellies that house them. Maybe, I'm going to say it, maybe hurtling an asteroid towards Earth purposefully to help girls stop hating themselves sounds a bit like an overcorrection. But as a woman who can remember the difference between the joy of just being when I was 10 and the layers of self-doubt that adolescence added on and never seemed to subtract, I would do just about anything to keep other girls from feeling that. Although I do draw the line at posting pictures of myself in my underwear on the internet. Oddly, I find the asteroid thing much more appealing. Thanks. Since the release of their debut album, A Soldier, A Saint, An Ocean Explorer, in 2007, Finn Riggins hasn't been resting on their collective laurels. They've been averaging about 200 shows a year in 43 states, including an 80-day tour around the entire perimeter of the United States in the spring of 2010, which, if you actually do the math, it amounts to over 450 of those weird orange lands travel crackers. You know those? <laughs> Their sound refuses to be boxed by your preconceived notions, but if you want to call them post-punk synth-driven 70s prog pop, they might not hit you. Their new EP is Bench Warmers. Please welcome tender-loving empire recording artist Finn Riggins.
was Finn Riggins and you're listening to Livewire Radio. You can find more information and listen to tracks from their new EP Benchwarmers at finnriggins.com. That's Finn with two N's. In January 2004, NASA landed two robot geologists on the planet Mars. In the years that followed, the robots named Spirit and Opportunity have sent back startling images of our closest celestial neighbor. In 2012, a third robot, Curiosity, was sent to join them. Here, with a message for the people of Earth, is Mars rover Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Hello, the world. This is one-third of the robotic geological instruments currently mapping the planet Mars. I am speaking to you on behalf of my counterpart, Opportunity, who, let me tell you, is frankly too upset and hurt to talk to anybody right now. Want to know why? Because me and him have been up here nine years. Curiosity parachutes down like the freaking queen at the Olympics, and you guys freak out like it's never been done before. Well, it has been done before twice, okay? All he does is take photos of himself, all right? Like it's freaking MySpace or something. It isn't MySpace. It's just space, pal. Speaking of which, is MySpace still a thing? Because uh, I think I forgot to log out before I left Earth. So if anybody can just log out for me, I don't want anybody going in messing with my pictures, that kind of stuff. Thanks. Oh, and by the way, we've heard some not-so-great things from this Twitter thing, specifically uh, White Girl Wasted, who tweeted, Mars rovers should be finding aliens and crap. Studying some rocks is boring. I want to see aliens. Oh, boy. I'm sorry that the only thing we found is some iron globules suggesting the presence of water. I find that pretty interesting, but maybe that's just me. 
Maybe we, when you can no longer get a water back for your quadruple Long Island iced tea, it might be more relevant to you. Speaking of relevance, I got one last thing to say. They've been uploading episodes of The Office for us, and uh, someone needs to tell who's ever in charge of that show that it is over, brother. It has been over since season five. Come on, enough is enough. Just let it go. That was a special message from the Mars rover spirit. Now back to Livewire. That was Sean McGrath and Trisha Ferguson. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that dares to ask the question. Are, are you going to finish that? Because seriously, I, I didn't eat lunch because I had the show, so... Like half a sandwich would be, that'd be nice. Coming up, web series maven Issa Rae, author Daniel Smith, comedian Ian Carmel, and more from Finn Riggins. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. So maybe our next guest isn't quite a mogul yet, but she's definitely on her way to becoming one. As a funny, self-identified, awkward black girl, Issa Rae didn't see herself represented in the shows that she really liked, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Arrested Development, and Seinfeld. And she said people were looking for a black Liz Lemon, and she was happy to try to fill that role. On a budget of zero dollars and a lot of favors, she created the web series The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, and it was an immediate hit. So much so that she was able to raise over $56,000 to finish season one. And now, after a season and a half, her videos have racked up over 90,000 subscribers and almost 12 million views. When she's not producing awkward black girl episodes, she creates shorts like I Hate L.A. Dudes and Ratchet Peace Theater. Here with a commentary on her favorite new show is Issa Rae. My name is Issa Rae, and I have an appreciation of all things Ratchet. What is Ratchet, you with the white skin asks? I'd like to define ratchet as if ghetto and hot mess had a baby, and that baby had no father, and that fatherless child grew up to be a stripper, and then made a sex tape with an athlete and became a reality star. That, my friends, is ratchet. Ratchetness has spread with herpes-like speed to our music and our television screens. Take the new VH1 show that just premiered. Move over, Claire and Heathcliff, Heathcliff Huxtable. There's a new image of black love in town, and it will stomp you the hell out if you talk mess, ho! <laughs> I'm talking about Love and Hip Hop's Me and Mr. Jones, featuring Chrissy Lampkin and Jim Jones. The former is a New York hood rapper from these Harlem streets who has finally decided to sort of settle down with his lady, and it only took a public proposal by her uh, yeah, that's cool, acceptance from him, a loss of the ring by him, and then two more years for an official proposal. So the course of ratchet love never did run smooth, said a ghetto Shakespeare, never. <laughs> Lucky for us, VH1 has centered a show around their tumultuous relationship, and the very beginning monologue teaches me that I've been going about my relationship with men all wrong. Let's listen. My name is Chrissy, last name Lampkin, but that could change. That is, if me and my man Jim Jones ever take the walk down the aisle. I'm not sure when that day will come, but if it does, no one will be able to say it was easy. Very 
thank you, Chrissy, for making me realize that you're not supposed to have standards and general expectations from your almost kind of boyfriend, fiance, partner. We as women need to stop trying to be all definitive about our relationship with men and just let them figure it out. He's already given you a ring. What more do you want, you demanding heifer? Jeez. Give it time and who knows? Maybe one day he'll grace you with the title of main boo in a decade or two. And maybe he'll even be faithful to you. <laughs> There I go, expecting the world again. Don't ever dream about being the only one. That's just selfish. Instead, learn to just be happy with what you can get. Thanks, Chrissy and Mr. Jones, for teaching me that all I need in this world of ratchet is me and my almost boyfriend. Welcome to the show, Isa. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, I wanted to uh, just, first of all, I'm definitely watching that show. Okay. FYI. Um, <laughs> You're missing I'll, out. I'll say that, I, that I'm not, um, <laughs> but then I, I will. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll watch the marathon. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted you to just give a, a, an overview of your show for our listeners who haven't seen it. Sure, for um, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Yeah. Awkward Black Girl essentially deals with a, the title character as she navigates through love, life, and awkward moments. Like, what do you do when you see someone in the hallway multiple times? Do you have to keep saying hi every single time? <laughs> so, issues like that. <laughs> the, the important stuff. The important stuff. The important stuff. Um, I actually, I wanted to, to play a quick clip from the show just to give everybody a flavor of the show. Now, your character on the show is named Jay. Jay, yes. Um, and you, uh, this scene is you on a date with your possibly new boyfriend. He's White Jay. Uh, and this is the very first date. Have you eaten here before? Oh, no. Um, but the Yelp review is really good. And uh, there's this thing they have here, Aunt Jay's Fried Chicken. Uh, maybe thank you. What am I, the Popeye spokesperson? Fried chicken made him think of me? Fried chicken made you think of me? No, Jay, not, not, the, not the fried chicken. Uh, no, I, the, the Jay part. You know, JJ. Dynamite. Okay, because if you were racist, this day could get awkward. So I'm glad you're not. Besides, I can't be racist. I love the blacks. Jay, I'm kidding. Coming to a first date starving was a mistake. I want to stuff my face like an obese gorilla, but I have to be ladylike. What can I get y'all? I'll have the small vegetable side salad, please. And a side of macaroni and cheese. Uh, and I'll go with the jambalaya. Okay. Damn, I could really f up some jambalaya right now. <laughs> That was from The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Um, it, it's interesting because this, what, it, what the show has felt to me like is just sort of really an extended romantic comedy. You know, um, as opposed to, you've, you've said that you love shows like Parks and Rec and, right. and The Office, and it absolutely has that feel as well. But it feels like the heart of it is this romantic quest that she's on. Yeah, I would definitely say that that was season one, and it actually happened by accident. You know, we really, really, um, the viewers are, play a huge role in sort of how the story yeah. develops. And even with the character of White Jay, we didn't call him that at all. The character was, was named Jay, And he was introduced initially to bring some competition to the other love interest, Fred. And um, actually, our producer at the time, because our show was predominantly of color, she said, you know, the best way to get white people to watch it is to cast a white guy. So I was like, oh, my God, you are so smart. That makes, <laughs> that makes so much sense. And so we did. And he was supposed to be a one-time character. But as soon as he premiered in that episode, the comment section went, went mm, White Jay, yes, yes, please bring him back. Oh my God, I cannot wait. And so that's how he was born. So it was never intended to be this sort of romantic comedy, but it ended up playing out that way. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so many of the, the shows sort of um, incredibly sweet moments, and your moments. Uh, there's a moment when you're getting ready for a date with him, and you're taking shots, and you're trying to get yourself, you know, psyched up for it. As you must. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think. What do you think it is about this? You know, you you've talked about curb your enthusiasm and the office. These shows. What do you think it is? about these shows that make us cringe, that make us want to watch them? Because you can identify, you can see yourself in, in those moments. Like, you can, you cringe because you've been there before and you've done that and you've been guilty of that. And to see that played out in front of you is, is kind of embarrassing and kind of cringeworthy. So I really like to tap into the everyday, um, just these mundane situations that everybody has been through because you can find humor in it. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely have. Um, in fact, the New York Times said of you, with her microscopic focus and loose aesthetic, Ms. Ray is closest to the spirit of Larry David. Ooh. Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about that comparison? That was an honor. I love whoever wrote that article. I will <laughs> marry him. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty much an ideal situation, right? It I mean, was you... definitely, yeah. And that's, I mean... He's definitely a role model, and I just love his sense of humor. So to be compared to that is great. I, I read that you read every YouTube comment. Why do you do that to yourself? <laughs> I can't help it. Like, I'm a glutton for punishment. Some of the YouTube comments are actually insightful. Like, the ones sure. that aren't racist and stupid and they don't... <laughs> The people who don't think they know everything, some of them, like, give great constructive criticism. Like, even with the clip, um, like, the sound was a little weird, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like, yeah. some, some YouTube commenters will be like, hey, you know, I really love the show, but the sound is really off. Can you, like, try to improve it? And, you know, I don't want to punch them in the face. I want to, like, improve the sound. Yeah. And, like, even with one of our characters, they would say, oh, I really want to like this character, but he needs to be developed a little bit more. And so comments like that are great because yeah. they actually help you as an artist, whereas... You know, other comments, not so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I actually, I read that, uh, that your mother actually wanted to be a director, and she's sort of living through you on this. Has she given you any, any advice? Just to cast her in the show. <laughs> <laughs> she always tries to, like, sneak moments, like, so when are you going to need to need an older woman in your show? And I say never, even though, but, <laughs> but she hasn't given me advice. She's very, very supportive and very, very proud. You know what? Just for her, I'm going to go to the YouTube comments and say that you're ageist. And then you're going to have to have her on. So, And I will um, read it. Thank yeah. you. Um, and I, just one question before you go. So if Awkward Black Girl has over 12 million fans, can you really call yourself awkward anymore? No, that makes you more awkward. Are you kidding me? When I run into people on the street and they expect me to be awkward, do you know how that feels? Yeah, do something awkward. Yeah, right? Oh, my God, you're so awkward standing there looking at me. Like, yeah, I am now. Thank you. Well, um, and you have, you actually have a, you've talked about a web series that you're working on called The Michelle Obama Diaries. Is that coming or...? <laughs> Yes, we are working on that. It's very hard, I must say, because we've gone through several drafts, and the first lady is just so likable. We don't want to, like, disrespect her, and I don't ever yeah. want to be the reason that people hate her. So it's coming soon, right. provided that we get it right. Well, and you have a channel on YouTube, and the show is great. Uh, the show is The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. The creator is Issa Rae. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> was Issa Rae of The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. More information at IssaRae.com. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and if you're in the Portland area on October 13th, come to our special Wordstock extravaganza at the Aladdin Theater with authors Kurt Anderson, Aaron Morgenstern, and Maria Semple. Plus, R&B artist and memoirist Betty Levette, and musical guests The Satisfaction and David Bazan. You can find more information at LivewireRadio.org. Listen, red light, yellow light, green light, go. Crazy little woman in a woman's show. Mary Queen, man, can't really love. Hey, Tim. Oh, uh, Sorry to interrupt. Hey, Leah. Yeah, uh, what are you singing there? Uh, that, uh, that was that was a uh, rare Bon Iver B-side uh -huh. from the vinyl version of the. 
Blood Bank EP? Yeah, you mean Bon Iver? <laughs> because it sounded exactly like Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on Me. I, I know, um, but, okay, like, you know when the Decemberists did that R.E.M. homage? Well, it's, it's kind of like that, but, you know, more Def Leppard-y. <sighs> How many times has this happened to you? You're at work with your favorite Pandora channel blasting when stupid Leah passes by and busts you. Man, Leah. Am I right? Actually, she's a pretty nice person. Stop it, stop it. We hate Leah. But that's not the point. The point is, a person should be able to enjoy their music without fear of judgment, which is why Pandora has created the Shame Shield plugin. Here's how it works. You're in your office, and your Men Without Hats channel is blasting. Shame Shield uses infrared technology to detect impending human interaction. And changes the music before said humans are within earshot. Hey, Tim, uh, sorry to interrupt. Is, is that Blind Pilot? Shame Shield also includes lyrics and band information to turn you into an instant aficionado. And if you can't take in all the information in time, Shame Shield's internal expert takes over. Uh, yeah, Leah. I, you know, I think it's even better than their first self-produced album. Three rounds and a sound. You know, uh, lead singer... Israel Nebuchadnezzar. ...has really hit his stride. Yeah, I agree. Um, would you like to go on a date with me and maybe enjoy some sexy times afterwards? Uh, I would, yeah. <laughs> The Pandora Shame Shield plugin. It'll help you hook up with someone a lot more interesting than Leah. That's right, Leah is a poopy head. Look, what is everybody's problem with Leah anyway? If you have to ask, then I cannot help you. That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Trisha Ferguson. Our next guest started as a storyboard artist on films like Tim Burton's The Corpse Bride, the British comedy Mr. Bean, and Universal's The Tale of Despero. He was head of story and character design on Leica Studios' critically acclaimed Coraline, and in June of 2010, he was named one of the top ten animators poised to become a household name. Last year, he embarked on his first experience as a feature film writer-director, co-directing Leica's stop-motion creepy comedy Paranorman with Sam Fell. Utilizing 60 Canon 5D cameras and full-color 3D printers for the first time to create character faces. The New York Post called the film the year's most visually dazzling movie so far, and Hollywood.com called it a technical marvel. Please welcome Chris Butler to Livewire. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted to, before we uh, started talking about Paranorman, I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about when you were a storyboard artist, because yeah. you actually, uh, your first film in stop motion was uh, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. That's right. Although, um, I did notice that you said likely to be a household name. Household name? What animator is a household name? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But, you know, carry on. <laughs> It'll happen. I appreciate it anyway. It'll happen. You never know. Um, but I wanted to ask about, about Tim Burton because he has a very specific aesthetic. He's an artist himself. So mm. did that make your job easier or harder? On Corpse Bride? Yes. It made it easier, obviously. Because, in fact, in some ways it, w it was slightly strange because he was absent uh, from the set quite a lot because at the same time he was making um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, so a lot of the time, we were making decisions that kind of had the what would Tim do factor. Yeah. And basically what Tim would do would be stripy socks, black and white, um, <laughs> curlicues, and that's, yeah. Sewn up yeah. face, body parts sewn on. Yeah. Yeah. So No, I mean, it was, it was a great experience. What, what was interesting about it, I think, was that it seemed to be like a whole new generation of artists and craftspeople who'd got into stop-motion animation, and we're all poised like coiled springs waiting for a feature to come along. And that came along, and we all just leapt on it. We were all young. Um, 
We got along very well, the whole crew. We got drunk a lot. Oh, good. That's inspiring. It was inspiring, yes. <laughs> I think. Yes. So, so after, uh, after Course Bride, you actually, uh, well, the most recent Leica film that you worked on was Coraline. Um, and now on this film, you were actually the writer and the co-director of I this. know, right? Yeah, after you were a storyboard artist, and then you were in charge of characters, character design. Mm. This, is a, this seems like a pretty I, giant... Yeah, I, I was head of story. I wasn't in charge of character design. I did a couple. I don't mind you saying that, though. <laughs> I don't mind that getting out there. Um, I think Henry Selleck would probably kill me, but mm -hmm. um, that's okay. Yeah, um, that was a fantastic experience. Um, Coraline was a... It was an incredible... An incredible movie, really. I mean, it was just so different. It it broke all the formulas for uh, family animated movies, and it made me realize that Leica was a, a very special place. Yeah. And and of course, during Coraline, I showed the first thirty pages of my script for Paranorman uh, to Henry Selick because I figured I wanted some input from someone who would be essentially brutal, brutally honest, and that's Henry. Um, so I gave it to him, and I, I was expecting him to tear it into pieces and, and throw it at my face, but instead he, he kind of said, where's the rest of it? I think we should show this to Travis. Travis Knight, who is the CEO of the studio, he's also mm -hmm. producer of the movie and a lead animator. Um, and he said a similar thing. He said, yeah, I love it. Where's the rest? And I said, oh, it's back home, and it wasn't... <laughs> Did um, you buy back home? You meant in England? No, so I, I have meant, to. It's going to take me. I have to go on yeah. a boat to get it. Yeah, I, I don't know how. I, I was still working on Coraline at the time. I, I knew what the movie was. I had it all kind of roughed out in, in you know, notebooks. Did you? Now he's a he's a he's a young boy who's an outcast who can yeah. see dead people. Yes. Um, and he's called upon by his town at one point to sort of be a hero. Possibly. Yes, essentially, yes. He, he's like the town pariah. He doesn't fit in because he sees and speaks to dead people. But he's kind of like the flip side of Haley Joel Osment. This is no sixth sense. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a problem speaking to the dead. It's speaking to the living that's the issue. Right, um, the, the dead are sort of his friends. Yeah, the dead are cool. <laughs> exactly. And you, you actually describe yourself when you were a kid as Norman. Do you feel like... Uh, uh, yeah. Do you feel like that you were writing the film that you wanted to see or should have seen when you were a kid? Yeah, I was writing the film that I wanted to see. I didn't care who else wanted to see it. It was my movie. No, I, 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 the, they, there's this, been this thing about it being Norman is me, and, and it certainly is true to, us, to an extent, but I wanted him to represent what it is like to be 11 years old, and I think you don't have to be weird to not fit in when you're 11. I think most people know what it feels like to not quite be a child, not quite be an adult, and not know how you fit into the world. And that, that to me, was the key for Norman's character, was to strip away the years of maturity that I had accumulated and try and... It's not funny. <laughs> and try and remember what it was like to be... Um, that awkward child. It's funny because uh, there was this um, short film that went out that Wyden and Kennedy uh, put together with me talking about how sad my life was. And my mum and dad saw it and were outraged. Well, did they think that you weren't being truthful about how your childhood was? I think it made them realize that, that oh, no, they knew. But they made them realize it was like, oh, <laughs> it, it really was sad. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to play a clip from the movie. Um, this is Norman and his new friend, Neil, um, mm. are in Neil's backyard because Neil knows that Norman can talk to dead people, and, he, and Neil wants to talk to his dead dog, Bub. Um, and oh, you, also, you should also know that when Bub shows up, he's cut in half. He's around here somewhere. So does everyone come back as a ghost? No. My grandma told me it's usually people who still have stuff to figure out, or sometimes it's the ones who died suddenly or in a bad way. <laughs> Bub? Is he there? How's he look? Uh, good. 
He's happy to see you. Who's a good boy, huh? Good boy. Can he feel if I pet him? Yeah, I guess. Mmm, mmm, bubby, bubby, boom. Uh, that's not his chin. It wasn't. It wasn't his chin. That works better with picture. <laughs> it does. It does, yeah. Well, yeah, what you also got to see, what, because Bub was cut in half, he got to live every dog's fantasy, which is sniffing his own butt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a highbrow entertainment. Exactly. For the whole family. Exactly. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we're interviewing Chris Butler, the writer-director of Paranorman. So this is, uh, for people who, who may not know, this is a stop-motion animated film. So it's created with actual puppets in the real world, small puppets in tiny little clothing, and it's and, you know, shot on actual sets yeah. um, with 60. You had 60 cameras, right? Yeah. Well, we had 52, 52 or 54 units. Don't ask me numbers. Okay. Um, but it was about that. And we had 26 animators, I think, at the height um, of production. So it's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I think there were 28 Normans. That's probably wrong as well. But there were a lot. Yeah, and he had 8,800 different faces that you printed out. Apparently, and... he had the capability of having 1.5 million expressions, which is more than anyone needs. I believe, I believe it is. It's more than an actual human being needs. Yeah. And this is so much work. Um, what do you think, for you, what's the most significant difference in characters that are created digitally and characters that are created with human hands? I think, I always go back to, you know, in 2D animation, what's on screen is a drawing of an object. In CG, it is a digital model of an object. In stop motion, it is the object. Um, and that kind of uh, connects to you on a, on a fundamental level. There's something that... There's something nostalgic about stop motion. It, it takes you back to, you know, thinking that your toys were coming alive. You can physically see this object on screen moving of its own accord. It's black magic in a sense. We would have been burned for it 300 years ago. Yes, absolutely. But I, I do think that's, that's an important part of it is that what you see on the screen, you can see that it's handmade. You can see the stitching in the clothes. You can see what amounts to the imperfection and that's what makes it real. It's, it's, it's always funny to me that these CG guys have NASA scientists trying to work out how to create imperfection. And we get it for free. <laughs> Just a little bit of hot glue in the wrong yeah. spot. And you're good. Just slap it on. It's good. Well, I also think that the, the character design on it, and, and I read a great quote from you about the character design. You said that Heidi Smith is yeah. the, the character designer, and you, you called her characters beautifully grotesque, and that was such a perfect phrase yeah. for the way that these characters looked because they didn't look... I think that that's part of the art of it that yeah. made it really interesting yeah. is that they didn't really look exactly like humans. They certain, and, and, and in most cases, they weren't so pretty, yeah. but they were beautifully grotesque. Yes, yes. W what was the reasoning behind that? It's observational, and I think sometimes the best observational art can be grotesque. You know, it can be purposefully ugly. Mm -hmm. um, and it pertained to this story in a very specific way. This story is about a town that is rotten, but this is about a, a group of people who are kind of papering over the nasty history of their town. It made sense to accentuate the ugliness of it. I, right from day one, I didn't want this to follow the normal parameters of an animated movie. I didn't want it to be a pixel-perfect, pastel-painted, white picket fences, you know. I didn't want that. I wanted it to feel like a real place. I wanted the apple pies warming on, or cooling on windowsills to be more like the apple pies you get from a McDonald's Happy Meal rather than a home-baked, you know. Yeah, those beautiful, adorable ones that you see in yeah, girls' I, dollhouses. Exactly. It was supposed to be... We, want, we wanted it to be a representation of the real world. It's not a perfect place. That may seem a little dark uh, for a kid's movie, but again, what it came down to for me was relatability. There are a lot of kids probably whose best family relationship is with their dead grandmother. Right? No, probably not. Uh, that actually does come from me. Does it? Yeah. Did you, did you talk to your grandmother when you were no. a kid? Uh, I mean, yes, when she was alive. 
but um, no, when, oh, okay, I'm glad that my mother won't hear this. When my, my nana, uh, when she was alive, she used to say to me that when she died, she was going to stick around uh-huh. to make sure I was okay. You can take that in two ways. Either, oh, that's sweet, she's looking out for you. Oh, that's really creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually thought it was a perfect way for someone to introduce the concept of death to a child. Mm-hmm. It didn't make it scary at all to me. And I had a very strong relationship with my nana, and I still do. I don't talk to her. She's never visited me. Um, but it, that's where the idea came from. It was this idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick... I'm going to haunt you mm-hmm. to make sure you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, Elaine Stritch plays the grandmother and yes. she's amazing in it and it's an incredibly sweet relationship and, and the movie is really this great combination of creepy and sweet and it's, it, it really is visually stunning it's, it's, a, it's a great movie um, and, I, and it's still in theaters now um, the, the movie is, is Paranorman, the director, writer is Chris Butler, thank you so much for joining us Thank you <laughs> Tonight's Live Wire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, who would like to remind you that fall is harvest season. Fall apples are rich in antioxidants, but are normally high up in trees, and you can't get them without a ladder or a long stick. Whole Foods solves that problem by coordinating with regional harvesters to provide you with fresh local produce at a reasonable distance from the ground. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. You're listening to the station of Classical Classical on 79.9 FM. That was the aquarium from Le Carnaval des Animaux, Carnival of the Animals, by Camille Saint-Saëns, arranged by the Czech-Slovak Radio Orchestra, with Henri Joulast on piano, and conducted by Michel Gamon, recorded at St. Martin in the Fields. I'm John Kinney, so glad to have you along this evening. Coming up in just a bit, we'll hear the first concerto in A minor by Johann Sebastian Bach from the Irish Baroque Orchestra, with Neville Orlott on harpsichord and Maria Ricard on harp, with viola composition by Klaus Bering and Josiah Perot on bassoon, with Bao Win on Prussian horn, <laughs> arranged by the Vienna Philharmonic, led by Zubin Mehta, recorded on the Vernal Equinox at St. Martin in the Fields. <laughs> but first... Here's Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, Opus Sonata in Fourth Nocturne, movement in F major to the third power, carry the one times seven. With Chamberlain Miyamoto on piano, Samuel Kern on first violin, Vaughn Lewis on second violin, and Christian Vope on third violin. With Reed Yarrow on fourth violin, and Yuri Nesterovich on second piano. Stalagpipe organ played by Apollonia Dicenzo. 
with Craig Bowen on the ocarina and Esther Dietz on Japanese bagpipe. Arranged by Sir Gregor Bixby with Manute Bebo on tribal drums and Gabrielle Pierce on flaugen with Ronaldo Xerxes on the smirkle and Vladimir Wyatt on plopsidilio. Conducted by Clough Bernstein while facing east at 4.30 in the afternoon on the second Sunday of March 2007 on the space station Aurora at St. Martin in the Fields. This is Classical Classical, St. Martin in the Fields. That was Sean McGrath. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Finn Riggins.
Union. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our house poet Scott Poole is away this week. And he usually kind of sums up the night for us in poetry. But we are still going to hear the most important takeaways from the show tonight. Writer and comedian Ian Carmel has been watching the show, and he is here to tell us what he's gleaned from that hour. Please welcome Ian Carmel. So I, I learned a lot of things. We all learned, but we, we, we were all here. We've all seen the show or listened to it. So what I'm going to do tonight is tell you some things that you can do outside of this show with the knowledge that you've gained on this show, you know, so something you can take with you. Uh, Sesame Street, we learned, is the name of the, uh, the street Indianapolis's WFYI is located on, but it is also an example of the plague of puppet gentrification that is plaguing low-income areas all across this nation. <laughs> Plopsidilio is a fake musical instrument from the classical music sketch, but it could also be the title of an Everybody Poop style book written by Snoop Dogg. So. <laughs> Black Liz Lemon is not only the gap in the zeitgeist that Issa Rae sought to fill, but also fruit that was forbidden to eat during the 1950s because of suspected communist sympathies. <laughs> Black Liz Lemons. On October 13th, Livewire will be holding a Wordstock extravaganza, which will feature several authors. But Wordstock could also feature, and I'd like to stress that it's not too late to add this, several rappers agreeing with each other. <laughs> word, 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 word. Oh, word, word. Yeah, word. Wordstock is also the first step to making a delicious alphabet soup. Uh, <laughs> quadruple Long Island iced tea was a comedic device used by the Mars rover to highlight the base sophomoric nature of most Twitter accounts, but Quadruple Long Island iced tea is also a great idea. It's a... <laughs> Paranorman is a movie directed by Chris Butler that Hollywood.com called a technical marvel. But Paranorman is also the name of the guy I buy pot from. Uh... <laughs> and finally, Def Leppard is a band used in tonight's Shame Shield sketch to embody the idea of lame music, but Def Leppard is also an amazing band that none of us should be ashamed to love. Guten Leben, Glauben, Glauben. Ian Carmel, everybody. And that is our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. to our guests tonight, Issa Ray, Chris Butler, Ian Carmel, and Finn Riggins. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and director Jason Rouse. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and Ian Carmel. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bouch. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 